Welcome, everyone, to what is episode two of the Connecting Construction podcast. I'm your host, Evan Hill, along with my favorite co-host, Dan Connery. Matt Sprague, who is also the third musketeer in our little group, is actually on PTO. He is on vacation, spending time with his family this week. So we have a different guest joining the show. I will introduce him shortly. I'm super excited to have him on this week. He has a ton of vast insight, especially in the contractor market that I think everybody's going to be excited to hear from him. So with that said, uh, a couple of quick housekeeping items just before we dive into episode two of this week. Episode one debuted two weeks ago. We had Scott Ackerman of the New Jersey Department of Transportation. He, he shared tons of insight in terms of what they're doing in New Jersey to mitigate the impact of COVID-19 on their projects, everything they're doing on the, you know, on the job site. And actually, even, even better, he shared some really, really good game day recipes. So go back and watch episode one if you missed it. Scott was phenomenal. Tons of insight to share. You can find it the show on Spotify, um, SoundCloud as well. We're, we're looking at actually expanding to Apple Music in the next couple of weeks too. Or excuse me, Apple Podcasts in the next couple of weeks. So be on the lookout for that. Uh, like, like I mentioned last week, we're really aiming to do this show every couple of weeks feature an informal conversation around everything that's happening in the construction space from owners, serial developers to, you know, to um, contractors, to suppliers, everything that's happening in real time. We are looking to have those authentic open conversations. So with that said, let's dive into week two. We have a very, very special guest in Joe Eberly. He is the VP of sales on the contractor side of Trimble's business. He oversees Project Site, which so many contractors know so well as their ideal project management platform. Uh, With Matt out this week, we uh, put out the feelers for a couple of guests, and we've got some exciting guests lined up in the next few weeks over the next couple of months. But Joe's schedule happened to work out best for us this week. So, Joe, without me doing a disservice to you and talking you up, um, let can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself, your your experience both professionally in the construction space, but also tell us a little bit about you personally, where you're from, you know what what the average person might not know about you. Sure, thanks Evan for the introduction. Uh, appreciate it very much. I would say that my journey to where I am today uh, has taken maybe a bit of an unusual path. I know Dan's background and his history in the space. Uh, I come from a little different space. So if I go way back uh, years and years ago, I was a diesel and hydraulic mechanic for almost 10 years. So I spent a lot of time turning wrenches under machinery, fixing equipment, that kind of thing. Uh, Realized after uh, uh, a number of years of doing that, that probably was not the career path of my choice. Uh, if I had the choice, I wouldn't make that uh, a career path for myself. Uh, so in the evenings, I taught myself how to program, and uh, I ended up getting on with IBM. And that was really my first step into the uh, the technology space, if you will. So I spent a couple years with uh, IBM doing um, different types of projects and uh, coding HTML and so forth. And that, again, that was my introduction. That's when I f- was first introduced to the uh, the internet and so forth. 
From there, uh, I got on with a uh, ERP company called JD Edwards, pretty well known uh, company out there. So I spent some time there, uh, also doing some programming and uh, some other project management type stuff. Uh, shortly after that, uh, by the way, I was there when uh, JD Edwards went public. That was a very exciting time to be at a company. Um, from there, I, uh, like so many people, jumped into the dot-com world uh, or what ended up being the dot-bomb. And so spent a few more years there uh, with a couple of different companies sort of chasing uh, equity and chasing shares like many other people and so forth. Never turned out the way I would have hoped it, but uh, hoped it would, but uh, gained a lot of experience. Uh, that's where I began my career in sales. Uh, so I was in a role that was sort of a pseudo sales, uh, sales engineering type role uh, at the time. That was during a time when <clears throat> it was uh, it was neat uh, to create creative uh, titles for yourself. Uh, so I was called a technology ambassador and uh, traveled uh, all over the United States in doing presentations and sales and so forth. Uh, dot dot uh, bomb happened. Uh, and so I took that time to get out of technology. And that's really where I entered into the uh, construction world. So I became a, a warranty tech and a superintendent for a home building company uh, and did, uh, did that for a number of years, built a couple of hundred homes uh, during my tenure there. Uh, and then transitioned into uh, the consulting world in construction. I worked for a company called Real Foundations as a consultant uh, for a couple of years. Uh, learned a whole bunch about the commercial side of the real estate and, and uh, construction market. Uh, and from there, uh, a, a friend and co co-worker of mine decided that it was our time uh, to do the entrepreneurial thing and started a consulting company. Uh, we did that for a number of years. We did lumber and material management for home builders. So in a time when uh, waste uh, was no big deal because builders were booming, they were spending millions and millions of dollars on extra material that never got consumed in the houses. Uh, we uh, created a business that went after that material, identifying that material and helping home builders uh, save money on that material. Uh, that's actually uh, shortly after I, I met John and Ron and Tevi uh, as, a, as a consultant and uh, started a, a, a friend, I would say a friendship and a professional relationship with them. And in two, late 2008, was it two, 2008? Uh, yeah, I think it was 2008. Uh, I had a conversation with John and he said, hey, I'm looking uh, for somebody to join the eBuilder company in uh, 2008. And timing was good for me. So I joined eBuilder in 2008 and started working on the owner side of construction uh, at that time. So long-winded way of saying that I've done quite a number of things in my career and have found myself uh, on the contractor side of the PPM division within Trimble after the acquisition of eBuilder. Great. Well, hey, Joe, I appreciate that introduction. I think, um, I think today's show is going to be really interesting because we have... What is, frankly, a grim reality of, of what's happening in this country, you know, if you've been following any of the of our content, whether it's been, you know, a webinar series, or, you know, our six-week webinar series about the new normal and everything we're dealing with, with COVID-19, how it's impacting the construction space, or even if you listen to our podcast from a couple of weeks ago, 
one point we've sort of been hitting home many times over is this reality that there is probably going to be a second wave of COVID-19. Um, obviously, we've been in lockdown for, well, it depends on what state you're in, but we've been in lockdown or quarantine for um, pretty much March, uh, again, depending on what, what state you're in. Um, myself, I am actually in Arizona. I know the company is headquartered in Florida. Uh, we are seeing spikes in both um, positives, but also positive percentages in, in both states. And some companies, some states are starting to adjust their timelines in terms of returning to the job sites, returning to the office, slowing down that return to business as usual. And Dan, um, I'll let you pipe in here real quick. One thing you've been mentioning is, you know, owners, owners, owners particularly, but contractors too, had had this sort of, I don't want to say excuse, but almost kind of an excuse the first time this whole situation happened. Like nobody, nobody really predicted COVID-19, a big pandemic was going to hit, you know, the world in a catastrophic way in early 2020. And, and if they are saying that, they're probably, they're probably lying to you. So in, in a way, it caught us all off guard. It obviously impacted all industries all around the world. It impacted our professional and our personal lives. Dan, you know, you've been sort of hitting this point home for several, several months now. What would you say to the owners who haven't yet you know, or owners and the contractors who haven't yet invested in a project management solution. We're in this sort of, you know, window here where we're potentially seeing an upcoming second wave. Dan, what would you say to them? Yeah, so really the the, the primary thing I would say, and I know we'll talk about this later in, in today's podcast, but around the difference between an owner's current investment or the owner's current investment in a PMIS solution versus the contractor's investment. That was one of the stark things that came out of our new normal webinar series you mentioned a moment ago. But the, the reality is, is that this industry, whether or not you're an owner, an architect, a contractor, or a subcontractor, was very against have, letting employees work from home. And what COVID did is it forced everyone to work from home. It wasn't a choice. So now all of a sudden organizations realize that employees can be productive when working from home if they have the right technology. So really what I saw during the new normal uh, webinar series, because of course we were talking with our existing customers, uh, both on the owner and contractor side, these are people who chose to invest in the PMIS solution. So really what's happened is, or what happened is you could divide owners into the have and have nots, those that have invested in technology and those that have not. And the haves saw very, very little disruption. In fact, I would argue they saw an acceleration in a positive way in things they were able to do because they invested in a PMIS solution. And the owners who did not invest went in the opposite direction. So the gap between the have and have nots has actually expanded. So, uh, you know, it, it, as you had mentioned, my, the, I, I always tend to be a little bit direct. And I always say you had an excuse the first time. Uh, I agree with you, Evan. No, nobody saw this coming. Uh, and therefore, you can say, hey, listen, I didn't know that 
all my people were going to have to work from home. I didn't think I had to invest in software solutions, specifically project management solutions to help them continue to work. So you had an excuse. Uh, the next time you don't. It's inexcusable if you get caught the next time and you're incapable of managing projects from home. Zero excuse. Dan, I appreciate that preaching from the pulpit. I, I actually had to, I had to hit that. I had to, I had to sort of stop on that point real quick, just before we dive into our recap, you know, our, our main takeaways from this webinar series, just because this, the timing of this podcast. So we're recording on uh, June 23rd. Um, today is a Tuesday or Wednesday. I think it's a Tuesday. I've completely lost track of days in quarantine, but uh, the timing of this podcast is really interesting because like I said, we're starting to see spikes around the nation. This, you know, return to office, return to job site schedule uh, is being impacted again. And we're in a little bit of a limbo phase to see, to see what happens here. Um, things are very fluid. Things are changing by the week. So it will definitely be something to keep an eye on. Um, like I mentioned, we had a six-week webinar series. I think it was almost a few weeks ago now. We just ended it. It's, it's felt... Um, basically, we did this six-week webinar series called the, the New Normal. And we talked about everything that's happening in the construction space and how COVID-19 is pretty much wreaking havoc on many projects all around the nation. Obviously, we brought on different components of the construction process from contractors to suppliers to owners to people on the government side to people on the private side really trying to gather all different perspectives from uh, the construction process. So this, this podcast is going to be a sort of, if you, if you missed it, or if you don't have the time to go back and watch those six weeks, if you do have the time, I highly, highly, highly recommend it. It's not a sales pitch. It's not, you know, um, some product demo or anything like that. It was actually really valuable, valuable, actionable info from some of the industry's brightest leaders. So Scott Ackerman, actually, who we had on two weeks ago, uh, was on that series. Highly recommend going back and listening to that episode specifically. So with that said, let's dive into some of these three, three main takeaways that we had from this webinar series. We'll start with the first one. I'll, I'll sort of intro it, and then I'll ask both Joe and Dan for their perspectives, both from the owner and the contractor side in terms of what they're hearing in the space, what they're hearing from their connections, and how ultimately projects are being impacted. So the first one is paper is dead. It is no longer, I guess you could say, maybe it's a little harsh, but it's probably no longer acceptable to have critical paper-based projects delaying or critical paper-based processes delaying your projects. Obviously, in a time like right now, uh, COVID-19, how it's being transmitted to different people, uh, we're, we're not, I, I don't think I personally have seen any official uh, studies on this, but there is the concern that it can be transmitted via surfaces. Um, so that's like handing, you know, a, a piece of paper and it, or an invoice to somebody else in the office. COVID could be transmitted that way. The reliance on paper is basically being substantially reduced, or it's at least it's forcing owners and contractors to reduce their reliance on paper in a time like this. Um, from that webinar series, we brought on Yates and Hensel Phelps, both talking about how, you know, their project and 
their project approval and document review processes were basically being uh, heavily impacted by this situation. And their reliance on a PMIS solution has really, really helped them mitigate that sort of um, negative tension. Uh, Dan, I, I, I guess I, I'll throw this one to you first. Um, what would you say to the owners who are still using or are still relying heavily on those paper-based processes for their day-to-day -day operations? Yeah, so uh, this brings me back a long time ago to uh, when I was in Boy Scouts. And I remember having assistant scout master who used to tell me, you can give me a million excuses, but not one good reason. So really what I, what I learned from the speakers and specifically to owners in our webinar series and specifically to government owners, because I would feel they're the most conservative of organizations that we have in our, in our customer base. And what's happened is the, well, we have to use paper because we have to have uh, wet signatures, physical signatures. I say that's an excuse, not a reason, because I have plenty of customers who tell me they don't need that anymore. There's no legal requirement for it, for it any longer. So people just don't want to change. They want to rely on their paper process, and therefore they're coming up with excuses as to why they need to maintain that old process. So uh, anyway, so the biggest thing I would say is that there is no legitimate reason why you need to rely on paper anymore. And there's a lot of reasons you shouldn't be. Uh, we talked about the fact that people are working from home and it's difficult to move paper. Uh, we haven't invented teleporters yet, so you can't teleport paper from one person's house to the next person's house. Uh, the, the, the inefficiencies are just profound when you're dealing with paper. You put a piece of paper on somebody's desk, uh, expecting them to do what they need to do and move that paper forward and that person's on vacation for a week. They've taken family, family medical leave act time away. And all of a sudden there's an invoice that goes unpaid for over a month because you didn't realize that person's out. Uh, that really, it's, it goes back to, it's inexcusable if you, uh, if you get caught off guard with work from home, it's inexcusable that you're using paper anymore. Joe, what are, what are you hearing from the contractor side? I, I know that's completely sort of a completely different ballpark than than the owners, but what are you hearing? What's the pulse on that? Yeah, I think uh, a lot of the sentiment is the same uh, in terms of the use of paper. Uh, you know, the statement paper is dead. I don't know that I would use that specific uh, term yet. Uh, it's more like paper is on hospice kind of a thing. Uh, organizations, I think, are realizing that the need to transition, especially in, in the times that we're in, uh, has become and is becoming more and more important uh, for a lot of different reasons. I won't go into all of them, uh, but, you know, the biggest challenge that we're finding is it, it's not a technology issue. It's not a paper issue. It really is. a It's a people issue. Uh, people are resistant to change. Uh, I'll give you an example. There's a there's a top 10 uh, general contractor out there that the chief executives still use a, a dot matrix printer uh, to get their weekly and monthly reports on. Uh, in today's world, that's almost unheard of, but they are still out there. And that's just one that I uh, I'm aware of. Who knows what else is out there? 
but that it's, it's a people problem and associated with that is what I call a single point of failure. If you have a paper-based uh, process or routing paper for review and approval still in place today, as Dan mentioned, somebody's out of the office, somebody uh, who you know misses uh, you know picking up their inbox and paper and so forth, your process fails. You have a single point of failure because that physical copy needs to be in the hands of somebody who is not there, does not have it. Uh, can't look it up online, can't read it on their phone, can't do anything with it unless they physically have a copy of it. So it's really that single point of failure is the risk uh, that's associated with paper-based process, uh, paper-based processes. Uh, so again, it's it's not a technology uh, limitation. Uh, it's it's rarely a process limitation. It's really a changing people's mind uh, and a people process or. A no. Joe, let me just jump in there. I, I want to drill down a little bit further. You you mentioned it as a pe as a people problem. So, what do you think is that resistance to transition from maybe paper to a digital process? Is it is it that we've always done it this way sort of excuse? Is it is it just the nature of the industry, the resistance to uh, shift things to technology? What what do you think drives that resistance? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. One is people uh, get comfortable. Uh, with processes, right? You think about, uh, I don't know, say an invoicing clerk or uh, a purchasing agent, their entire career is built around uh, utilizing paper. So somebody comes in and says, hey, we're going to disrupt everything that you do. One, uh, it, it causes them uh, anxiety uh, because perhaps there's fear of losing their job. Perhaps they're not comfortable with technology to begin with. And now all of a sudden an organization is saying, hey, we're going to make some sweeping changes on the way we do things. And people will put in place obstacles that make it very difficult uh, to all the way from select a, a system through the contracting of a, a PMIS system, uh, through the implementation and training phase, right? You continually hear people resist uh, along the entire process. So uh, that's part of it you know, in the contractor world. The other part of it is you think about the downstream effects. So uh, a contractor may work with a hundred uh, trades, trade companies, uh, subcontractors, suppliers, vendors, and so forth to the degree that those organizations, which a lot of times are very much smaller, uh, not as progressive in terms of technology, what are they having to do? They're having to down, uh, dumb down their processes in order to support the constituents that they work with, those contractors, those you know, uh, brick, uh, brick companies and those foundation companies and those framers who uh, also are on paper-based processes. And in order to work with them, uh, still need to provide paper-based um, processes internally. Uh, for ease of use and, in fact, in some cases, the convenience of working with those smaller players out there. So there's top-down and there's bottom-down drivers as to why organizations are still on paper or why organizations have uh, implemented change, put, it, put technology in place, and then mandated the use of that technology to all the stakeholders within their ecosystem of partners. You know, that's that's interesting because I wanted to jump back to something that Scott Ackerman actually mentioned two weeks ago. And, and I want to get your thoughts on, again on this, Joe. 
Scott had mentioned that actually New Jersey state law legislation that had been passed, you know, I, I think it was almost decades ago, actually stipulates, um, you know, paper-based processes in terms of how they do business. In terms of the contractor market, do you experience or do you hear that a lot, that state governments, local governments, whether it's the county level, city level, or the state level, do a lot of those government entities require paper-based processes? Is that something that you hear? Uh, we do hear that, right? So there, there are breaks in the electronic process, depending on who the client is. Federal work, for example, there's a lot of paper-based processes that have to be, and reporting, uh, that has to be um, supplied and done. Uh, local government agencies, state government agencies, many of them still require paper-based processes. It puts the contractors in a very difficult situation, especially those who uh, are technology forward in their thinking, have deployed uh, uh, PMIS systems or project management systems, uh, and they can get, say, 70% automation through those processes. But at some point, uh, they're required to break that automation, transition into a paper-based process, uh, and finish it out in that way. So uh, there's good and bad uh, when it comes to dealing with large uh, government agencies. And, uh, you, you know, the, the, the per especially for the progressive or the more technology-focused and leaning general contractors, it can be very frustrating. And uh, I want to jump in real quick on that point because the, and the, what's frustrating for me is that at the end of the day, the owner pays for that inefficiency. So the contractor is going to increase the prices they charge, the general conditions, because they have to go from an electronic to a physical paper-based uh, paper process. So these very entities that should be ensuring that they're good stewards of the taxpayer's money is not spending money well because they're driving inefficiencies down into their supply chain. So it's kind of an oxymoron to me. Yeah, so, very, if I can uh, just chime in there on your comment, it's, it, it's very much, it's often things like uh, I hear, you know, document retention requirements at government agencies require physical copies, right? Because they send them to uh, Utah into down into the salt mines and they store them for 10 or 20 years down there. And so the drivers for why they are not transitioning uh, are archaic in themselves, right? The storage of documents and so forth. Um, again, a lot of frustration out there when it comes to paper-based processes still in place. Moving on to really our second largest item, and I'm going to throw this um, your direction, Dan, is really the concept that we should question everything. Right now, frankly, we have the time to question everything. Most of us have been, you know, if you're not physically on the job site, if your project hasn't been delayed, um, you're working from home right now. And frankly, you have more time in the day, whether it's you're not commuting to the office, you're not commuting to the job site. Um, you're not spending time in traffic. You're not spending time mingling with coworkers in the office, getting coffee or food. The reality is, is we have more time to evaluate the processes and systems we have in place. Yates Construction actually shared that they were reviewing various inspections that they deemed unnecessary and were only being done because that's the way they had always done it. 
Uh, New Jersey Department of Transportation was also reviewing some of their approval processes that they felt were unnecessary. Uh, Scott Ackerman also was had shared a similar thought. Dan, what what are you hearing in terms of the owner market? Are how are people how are owners improving their processes? What types of things are they um, tinkering with, and in what ways do you think they can improve operational efficiency? Yeah, so typically, in fact, uh, uh, it'll be too late for this podcast, but we have a webinar uh, tomorrow on the 24th. So you'll be able to see a rebroadcast of it at some point. We're talking with uh, owners about what were the paper-based processes they first went after from an efficiency perspective. And not surprisingly, those are typically cost-related or document review-related. And one could argue that a lot of the cost-related ones are document reviews. So you have a, uh, a proposed change that either the contractor is driving or maybe as an owner you're requesting, and that needs to go through its approval processes uh, or approval process to, to get from an estimate all the way to either rejected or approved. And uh, so the, and then the other one is payment processes. So getting your contractors, your suppliers paid in a timely manner is very, very important for a lot of owners. So that tends to be the area that you go after first. You can chunk out. We've had folks talk about the worst case I saw, won't name who it was, went from a net 90 days payment. It was actually, I think, 89 days to pay contractors on average. So that's almost three months to uh, being able to pay in less than 10 business days. That's how much of an efficiency they were able to uh, to gain out of the process. So I would say it, it's around uh, cost, things that have dollars or document reviews, for example, uh, drawing submissions. So getting those approved in a timely manner. Uh, those would be the areas that I would see people going after first. Joe, how about you on the contractor side? Yeah, I think uh, I, I think the question uh, begs um, analysis or review uh, from a broader perspective. Years ago, I used to, when I was working in the owner market, I used to ask the question everywhere that I went, uh, when does a project become a project? Uh, it seems like a uh, innocuous kind of question, but when you ask that question in a room full of different stakeholders on the projects, uh, you get some very strange looks. You, you, you ask that of the finance people, right? They're gonna tell you, well, when I assign it a project number in our ERP system, that's when it becomes a project or when it is officially funded, uh, it becomes a project at that point. Well, we know that projects become projects well before uh, perhaps it's funded and so forth, right? You've got design, you've got procurement, you've got all of these stakeholders with different, uh, different responsibilities over the life cycle of a project. Uh, and so the question really to me is a much broader one around where you can focus. If an organization can get some alignment and agreement on when a project becomes a project, that's when you can really start doing an analysis and a discovery around when uh, and where you can find efficiencies in the life cycle of that project. Um, that's my experience on the owner side. I think uh, that resonates with the contractor market as well. You know, contractors are involved in projects even before they're awarded, right? In, in a lot of cases, uh, they're providing estimates, they're doing some feasibility work, all kinds of different uh, activities with the owner base out there. 
that necessitate uh, identifying and and really asking themselves, can we make these interactions or these activities on these pre-projects or feasibility projects more uh, efficient through the use of technology? I think you can, uh, for sure. And then what I'd like to do is go to the other end of the spectrum from what Joe just said, which is when should a project no longer be a project? So Evan, you may remember we spoke with a gentleman at Inova Health about a month ago and uh, was asking him about what advantages did he see in investing in uh, a PMIS solution. And what he shared with us, he's on the financial side of the spectrum, which is uh, Inova Health is a, of course, a healthcare organization and, and healthcare has been substantially impacted, probably one of the most impacted uh, verticals in our space because a lot of uh, elective surgeries have been postponed. So uh, he was tasked with what project should we put on hold because we now have a smaller budget or a smaller funding pool than we originally anticipated. And so he was effectively in real time able to tell the finance team, here are the pro here's the impact. If you tell me my funding is going down by 40%, then here are the projects we should put on hold. Uh, by the way, if you drop it to 50%, here are the additional projects. And if you say tomorrow it's 70%, uh, then he can in real time give the answers back to what projects should be put on hold, including going all the way down to forecasting the cash flow for all of those projects. So doing that, if if because we talked about papers dead uh, or or dying, to Joe's point. The next thing is running your projects, budget and, and funding and forecasting in Excel should be right behind paper when it comes to uh, dead or dying. Uh, so when we talk with owners who have not invested in a, in a solution like eBuilder Enterprise that automates a lot of the project financials and the cash flowing, it would be weeks between what projects should we be putting on hold? And when I give me an answer to that. And by the way, things just changed this week. So things are changing week by week, but it takes you three weeks to get an answer. You are perpetually behind. So uh, so that's another example of Joe talked about when is a project a project? And then there's the other end of the spectrum of when, when should a project no longer be a project? And both of those are, are greatly enhanced if you're invested in a PMAS solution. Yeah, I think in the excuse me in the, in the final analysis, if you it if your culture, whether you're an owner or a contractor, is question everything, uh, you're at an advantage already right out of the gate. Uh, you you create a culture where people question uh, when somebody says we do that because we've always done it. Uh, well, somebody should uh, speak up and and question that. Okay, what's the benefit? What's the What's what are we getting out of doing it that way? Like Yates did for sure uh, during their implementation of uh, a project site. And unfortunately, uh, I've seen it quite a bit over the last couple of years in the contractor market. Uh, that uh, question everything culture does not always exist. And in a lot of cases, it's don't question anything culture. Uh, and that really puts you at a, at a disadvantage. And in a lot of cases, you know, you, you might have somebody in the room who starts to ask that question or, or, or begin to uh, question something. And it can be off-putting to others who uh, don't have that culture of at, uh, question everything. And 
Joe, the thing I want to add in there, and it was a comment I wanted to make based on one of Evans' earlier questions, but it comes down to your next generation of workforce. So one of the things that we constantly are looking at at Trimble is the labor shortage that we see. But most of the time, people think of labor shortage from a skilled labor in the field. So people are actually doing installation or prefabrication. But where there's also a labor shortage is people coming into the industry from a project management perspective, the project management discipline. So the working in the office or in the actual job trailer itself. And what you're seeing with Generation Z specifically, which is your next generation of workforce, a little bit, I would argue, with millennials. I happen to have kids that, are, that split between millennial and Gen Z. Uh, you're seeing a group of, of workers who are going to question everything right, right out of the gate. So what's going to happen is if you're unwilling to have a culture of question everything, if you're unwilling to have a culture where you're investing in, in technology, then you will have a company or an organization that won't exist in 10 years because you won't have anybody to hire. And the reality is your dot matrix printing uh, chief executive, your we got to do everything on paper, we got to do everything two dimensionally. Those that's your past. And if you invest in things that that are in the past, then you are what I call nostalgic. And nostalgic is the first indication of atrophy, which is the next the the the, the first step to dying. Uh, so. You have to be doing this. It's just, I, I, I honestly scratch my head. Evan knows this. Joe knows this. I just don't get it. People have not invested in a PMIS solution. People are not investing in the next generation of employees. People that don't question everything. I am not, if it's, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Mm -hmm. I'm a, if it's not broke, you haven't been trying hard enough. Uh, kind of guy. So you, you got to be doing this, man. You got to. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And it, that's one of the reasons why I really enjoy working at Trimble, right? Because we are a question everything kind of company and we challenge ourselves. Uh, you know, if we are uh, building a product, if we are uh, helping an organization with processes, if our people are not at the table asking lots of questions, then we are a dying company as well. So, uh, uh, on the project site side, uh, serving the contractor market, uh, I feel real fortunate to be involved in an organization and with a team uh, who does adopt that question everything kind of uh, culture. And don't be fooled. There are providers out there uh, that do not take that approach uh, and you will find yourself stuck in a, in a bad um, situation with a, with a vendor uh, who will not push you who will just say yes to everything and, and will implement a software based on uh, your dying uh, processes or your dying culture. And that's a recipe for disaster. I've seen it happen many, many times. Now, this is a really good segue into our final and third concept of questioning everything. We're questioning how we work. And I actually feel really passionate about this one just because obviously I'm in a different generation than you are. I think I'm technically... I'm 25 years old, so I think I was born in 1995, so I think I'm, I'm technically a millennial. You are um, a millennial, yes. Okay, I am a millennial, just to confirm here. I, I'm passionate about this one because, frankly, I've been working from home 95% of my career. And one thing we're starting to find out in this whole COVID-19 situation is that people can work from home. There's this sort of, I want to say, inherent distrust that I feel like has lingered, not just in the technology space, but in more traditional um, 
industries I've noticed is that there's this, hey, if you're if you if you're working from home, you're not really working from home. You're maybe working for 30 minutes and goofing off for seven and a half hours per day. I I'm of the belief that if you have a if you can't trust somebody to to properly manage their time and successfully work from home and produce just like they were in the office, you're hiring the wrong person. And I and I truly believe that. So not only are you probably making a hire a bad hiring decision, I actually believe you're limiting your your talent pool. And actually I don't even think that's up for negotiation. I have I can tell you right off the bat, I have friends that are um, highly skilled engineers, marketers, sales folks, you know, who work all over the country and absolutely refuse, absolutely refuse to interview for any position that isn't remote. They do not want to actually, you know what, I'll give you a good example. Um, my wife and I just moved to Scottsdale, Arizona, um, a year and a half ago. We were Seattle natives actually. And one of my first positions in college was working at the county level. I actually worked in politics for a few years as a, as a personal staffer. And I'll never forget commuting from Redmond on the east side, which is right next to Microsoft headquarters, to downtown Seattle, which was two and a half hours each way. So I was spending a total of five hours on the bus or in the car every single day. And I know historically that may have been the normal for people who are older than me and you know more experienced in their careers. But I'll tell you this, my generation is not cool with that <laughs> whatsoever. And, and I'm just being honest. Like when you think about it, if, if you can get those extra few hours back per day, whether it's spending time with your wife, your kids, your dogs, your family, doing home projects like I know Joe was doing this morning with a, with a home nightmare, but I, I really believe, like I said, going back to my first point, if you're worried about a person not being able to successfully work from home and produce like they would in the office, you're probably hiring the wrong person. So that's, that's my little tangent as a 25-year-old, as a somebody who's early in their career and has worked remotely most of their career. Dan, obviously you're in a, you're in a hiring position. You're, you're an executive at eBuilder. What would you, what's your perspective on, on this whole remote hiring sort of transformation? Yeah, and that's, that's one of the things we talked about, I think a little bit in episode one. And also we talked in the, in the new normal webinar series is this concept of, of limiting yourself to talent because you're putting a geographic restriction on who you can hire. So if you're working wherever and you say it has to be in a commuting distance of that area, you've eliminated like 99% of the people in the United States to work for you. Uh, and that's just, in my opinion, that's foolish. I understand you have to have your people on site physically installing things. They can't be remote, at least not today. Eventually, I do think they will. You'll have robotics helping with installations. But at this moment in time, I'm talking about people that are reviewing submittals, and drawings and, and invoices and et cetera, et cetera. So I was super fortunate, uh, probably going on 20 years ago, to have an executive join a company I was with. And uh, he introduced himself to the company and he said, I'm gonna tell you something. I measure you based on your output, mm. not your input. So he told us, I don't care if you can get the job that I need you to do in 10 hours a week, then you have delivered the value I'm paying you for. However, if it takes you 60 hours a week, 
to get that job done. That's a you problem, not a me problem. So that gets back to your point of you're hiring the wrong people. Can people get their stuff done in the time that's needed to have it done by when they do it and how long it takes them to do it is irrelevant. You're measuring the wrong stuff. I've worked with plenty of people who have worked 50, 60 hour work weeks, mm -hmm. who are productive people I've ever seen in my entire life. Uh, so just because you're around doesn't mean you're doing productive, uh, productive work. So what I see with people who resist remote employees is because they can't work remote. So what happens is you have this fallacy that you project that everyone's just like you. So just because you can't work from home, nobody can work from home. Just because you know that you'll goof off all day long, so you only put 30 minutes of time in and you'll be goofing off, doesn't mean that everybody's like that. And then I appreciate the context you provided, Evan, which is there's also a generational issue that you have people like me, who's, uh, you know, I'm in my 50s, who are hiring and then assuming that the people they're hiring are just like them. So you've given a perspective on what the, uh, you know, what now I think it's uh, three generations behind me are starting to look for from a, a, a workforce uh, perspective. So don't make the mistake of assuming that the way you grew up, I remember my dad, when he first found out that I didn't wear a, a suit, <laughs> like that's unacceptable. The company you work for is a horrible organization. You need to quit there immediately. When I first shared one of my first management problems with them, I'm like, I'm trying to convince my team to do something. He goes, why do you say the word convince? They work for you. You tell them what to do. And I said, dad, that does not work anymore, man. They'll quit. If mm -hmm. all I do is ask people around that, that's, that's your generation. That's the baby boomers, man. That doesn't work for Gen Xers like me. Um, so anyways, it, it's, it's back to Joe's point, uh, question everything. The way you used to do things is not the way you're going to be doing things. Uh, and you need to prepare yourself for the future or you're going to be in, in, uh, in deep, deep trouble. Joe, do you have any thoughts on this whole topic? Yeah, I got, let me tell you a couple of stories that will illustrate my, my views on it, right? So I mentioned years ago, uh, this was early 90s when I, uh, when I got picked up with IBM. That was just at the time when technology was beginning to emerge and boom and the internet and that kind of thing. Uh, there was a massive, and, and I worked out of the uh, Boulder, Colorado IBM office. There was a massive culture shock at IBM during that time. You know, IBM of course was uh, dark suits and white shirts and ties and that's just the way that it was. And in order for them to take advantage of this newly emerging technology, they were forced to go to the universities and hire talent coming right out of the uh, University of Colorado was the primary one there. Uh, but these these kids, uh, I'll say it that way, coming out of college, they were wearing Birkenstock sandals and baggy shorts and uh, hats and T-shirts. And you could almost see the angst between the old IBMers and the new folks coming in when they were walking down the halls opposite each other, the glares and dirty looks that they would give each other. Uh, it was just uh, an interesting time to be at the very forefront of, of, of that emergence of uh, a new way of thinking about work and the workers. I, I remember reading it when it comes to working remotely. I remember reading an article probably about 20 or 22 years ago about a guy who was a programmer 
uh, got himself set up with a laptop and he bought a rail pass and he worked from the train. So he traveled all over the, really the world and worked when he, uh, when he had time and worked in the evenings and worked at night and worked at the train stations. Uh, but for several years, that's all he did, uh, programmed, you know, VPN into his systems, did his programming thing uh, and, and turned it into a work life adventure. I was fascinated by that uh, because at the time I had never worked from home. Uh, the, the concept was foreign to me. And I thought and I thought about that for months and months. Could I, a married guy with three kids at the time, do something like that and make that work? And I'm going to turn this into confession hour for just a second. <laughs> uh, I, I, I live and work out of Colorado. I, I've worked remotely for about 18 years at this point. Uh, and there have been times when I was in the mountains at my campsite with a fire going, I'm on my laptop working, having meetings and making phone calls and doing my work, sitting at a camp, sitting in front of a campfire in the mountains of Colorado. It does work. It can work. And it's more beneficial to me, for me anyway, it was more beneficial and more fulfilling for me to be able to turn my work life into an adventure that I could do other things and mix them together. Yeah, in the part, just really quickly, one of my favorite examples of, of innovative business models is not a perfect analogy here, but I just think it's just brilliant of, of thinking differently is uh, JetBlue, I believe was the, was the airline. When they first came out, what they decided to do for their airline reservations uh, folks, so this is before you did everything online, right? So you call in to book your tickets, is they hired almost exclusively, exclusively work from home parents. So parents that, uh, that were, st sorry, stay at home parents who could maybe work 10 hours a week. So they just hired a bunch of these people, gave them just log into the system when you're free. When, you know, if your child, you put your child down for a nap, you have two hours, log in, work for two hours. Uh, and the satisfaction that people booking reservations gave to JetBlue during this time period was just astronomically ahead of everyone else in the industry because the people were so happy to be engaged with other adults, to be contributing to society, and to feel uh, useful beyond being a parent. So, of course, parents an important job, but as a society, especially an older generation, we're tied into our work productivity. Uh, it's but most people would say, nope, you got to work 40 hours a week. You got to be in a call center. So somebody said, why? Why do you have to work 40 hours a week? Why do you have to be in a call center? You can take a call from home just as easy as you can from a call center. Uh, and because they did that innovation, just people loved booking reservations with these guys. So it continues to go back to, for me anyways, it's challenge everything. We're, what COVID did is cause a mass acceleration to stuff that was happening anyways. Like you said, Evan, your generation's looking for more work from home opportunities. Like Joe, I've been working at home for over 15 years now. Uh, I can work in New Hampshire. What I love about it, if my kids come home from school and I don't have a meeting, I can run outside and play basketball with them for 20 minutes, catch up with how their day's gone, come back to work. Uh, my work-life balance in fact, for me, work-life balance is no longer, I don't think that makes sense to me. I just have life balance. 
Mm-hmm. So I can come in and do my work when I either need to or I want to. I can be with my family when I need to or I want to. I don't have to try to strike a balance between the two. Uh, and I think that's the uh, I think that's the wave of the future. Yeah, that's what I, I think that's what I described as I see it the same way, Dan. That, that's my work adventure. I, that's what I call it. Uh, it. It is the blending of, you know, uh, as a professional, as, you know, uh, a father with grown children that are no longer in the house. It is my work adventure, right? My work is my adventure. My adventure is my work. In a lot of cases, they uh, they cross over. To bring it full circle, this is where technology has made huge impacts. Uh, and, and, you know, the times we're in and with COVID-19 and the impacts, uh, I think people will begin to uh, embrace it more. Uh, they'll begin to understand and know the value of technology, especially SaaS-based systems in the construction world and the need to have access to the information, the processes, the reviews and approvals, wherever you're at, whenever you need to, uh, critically important to being successful coming out of uh, the, the times that we're in now. Yeah, what, what, what I feel that COVID was, was it was the greatest eliminator of excuses in my life. Mm. Uh, everything that we can't, we can't, we can't, we can't work from home. We can't do this. We can't do that. Well, you know what? COVID proved you wrong. You can. Uh, now, maybe you couldn't work from home because you didn't have the right technology. But I can tell you within our group, within uh, within Trimble, the productivity impact in switching from uh, work in the office, because we were our culture, eBuilder prior to the acquisition, and a little bit Trimble also, even as a technology company, was still a majority of roles felt like they had to be in the office. And I remember sitting in a meeting saying, well, why does this role need to be into the office? Well, because uh, we're not sure if they're going to work the, the full time because they need to be available because, because, because. And what COVID did is eliminate all the becauses because our response time and our tech support team went up our satisfaction rate went up. Our call throughput with our inside sales team went up. Productivity across the board went up. So er- now the only reason you want people in the office is because you don't trust them. Um, so, and that that's a really crappy organization to have to work for, in my opinion. Uh, yeah. So, sorry, Dan. Yeah, I, I would just end in uh, kind of a personal story. Um, you know, I working in the owner market for years and I had a lot of owner clients out there that I had worked with uh, my uh, who were using eBuilder uh, and my son, who is an electrician, uh, was contra- works for an electrical company, was contracted by one of those owners. Uh, and I remember, uh, you know, him and I logging into that account and looking at his job with him sitting at home in our uh, in our in our kitchen and uh, kind of a unique experience from a generational perspective to be able to see the work that i have been doing on the e-builder side with the owners and now the contractors my son coming up uh getting uh, trained as an electrician uh, and then having the experience of uh, logging into the system with him and looking at the project that he was working on uh, very unique, very um, special uh, kind of scenario for me. Well, that is a that is a perfect bow tie on this conversation. Uh, Dan, Joe, thank you so much for uh, 
Joining this week's show, Joe Eberly is honestly a legend in the contractor and owner space. He's a legend in construction. So Joe, thank you so much for uh, joining the show and sharing your insight. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed it very much. So like I said, every week or every couple of weeks, excuse me, we're looking to you know sponsor these informal conversations around the construction process. Joe hopped on this week. Scott Ackerman was a couple of weeks ago. You can find our entire show on Spotify and we'll see everyone in a couple of weeks.